I have done uh, numerous lectures on Spurgeon. I've done a seminar, gives a biographical sketch of his life. I've done a seminar on his preaching and the style of preaching. I recently did a series on his lectures to my students where he talked about pastoral theology. I did a lecture once on the spiritual conflicts that he was involved in, the doctrinal conflicts, the controversies that sort of absorbed so much of his time. And I did a seminar once, I think it may have been in one of the Sundays in July, on Spurgeon's long conflict with Joseph Parker, who was the second best known preacher in England at the time. What I want to do this morning is a subject I've always been interested in, but I've never actually covered in a lecture. And I know most people nowadays have heard that Spurgeon struggled with depression throughout his life. In fact, you'll find occasional references to the fact of Spurgeon's frequent bouts with depression in some of the biographies that were written by people who actually knew him, contemporaries of his. But there are relatively few resources that discuss in any kind of depth or detail the questions of what caused his depression or how did he manage to persevere through it or even what, what, was, the, what was the source of his melancholy? How far back in his life did it go? What was the cause? Was it worry or stress, a sense of loneliness or isolation? Was it trauma? Was it a medical condition? Was it related to his constant concern for his wife's medical issues? She was homebound for most of their married life after they had kids. Was it the way Spurgeon was savaged and publicly mocked by so many critics and, and cartoonists in the London newspapers? Or was it, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the daily pressure of concern for all the churches, because there were hundreds of Baptist churches across England and around the world that looked to him for leadership? Or was there just something about Spurgeon's fundamental temperament that was dark and dysfunctional? And the answer to all of those questions is yes. Spurgeon's struggle with chronic despondency was undoubtedly caused by a perfect storm of all of those things. And if you combine those influences with the fact that Spurgeon lived in an era where it was quite a challenge for anyone to stay upbeat and positive all the time. Remember, this was the era of poverty and hardship that you read about in Dickens' novels. Dickens and Spurgeon were contemporaries. They lived not far from each other. There were lots of orphans and abandoned children who were put in workhouses rather than proper orphanages. And Spurgeon was so concerned about society's treatment of homeless children that he started an orphanage of his own. There was petty crime everywhere, pickpockets and swindlers who swarmed the streets of London. The city itself was filthy and fetid with overpopulation that only exacerbated the poverty problem. You had rigid class distinctions that compounded every civic evil. Disease was a major problem. London's sewer system was woefully and notoriously inadequate, and the River Thames carried the overflow, and it was putrescent. It drew flies. It, it, it left the whole city blanketed in bad air. The perpetual fog of stench and microscopic filth and smoke from so much burning coal, uh, coal was, was 
hung over the city all the time, and they called it miasma. The miasma was a a noxious vapor that smelled bad, and of course it had an oppressive and dispiriting and gloomy effect on everyone's mood, and it undoubtedly had a damaging effect on everyone's health as well. In 1854, during Spurgeon's very first year in London, the city was brought to its knees by a cholera outbreak. More than 10,000 people in London died during that epidemic. The statisticians mapped the locations of the first 600 people who, who got cholera, and they noticed that the center of the outbreak was at the intersection of Broad Street and Cambridge Street in the Soho district. And there was a pump at that location, a water pump, public pump, that drew water from a well, and sewage had seeped into the groundwater, and although no one fully understood why at the time, this was the chief source of the cholera outbreak. So officials took the handle off that pump so that people couldn't use it, and the epidemic began to, dip, to abate, but even after the removal of the pump handle, an additional 3,000 deaths from cholera were added to the death toll. All this lasted more than a year, and Spurgeon, who was still a newcomer in London, was strongly advised by the experts of the day to stay as quarantined as possible. Uh, Most of the experts actually believed that cholera was spread through invisible particles in the miasma. Remember, this was 1854. It wasn't until seven years later that Louis Pasteur proposed germ theory and explained that many diseases, including cholera, are spread by microorganisms, and polluted water is filled with dangerous microorganisms. But in 1854, no one knew that for sure, uh, but it was a fact that the source of the cholera epidemic in London was polluted water, mostly from that pump, but also some of the water companies were selling polluted water. So the removal of that pump handle in Soho was a turning point. That was one of the very first really clear signs that polluted water rather than the miasma was the source of infection. And for his part, Spurgeon simply trusted the providence of God with his own life. He kept up a normal schedule of pastoral visits, visits to the sick even, and ministering to the people in his congregation who were bereaved. And he did this without hesitation throughout the pandemic. He credited the Lord with keeping him free from the disease, but still, that was a bleak way to spend his first year in London. And although he was never overly concerned with whatever danger there was to himself, he had so much death and bereavement to deal with that this was not a happy year, his start in London. He was literally still a teenager at the time. He was just 19 when he went there, and he was dealing nonstop for a year with grown-up sorrows and literally hundreds of bereaved families. And it's worth noting, by the way, that famous public calamities dominated London both at the beginning and at the end of Spurgeon's ministry in the city. In 1888, just four years before Spurgeon died, Jack the Ripper was terrorizing Whitechapel, which was less than two miles from the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 1988, by the way, was the same year the Baptist Union formally censured Spurgeon, and that plunged him into depression as well. He died four years later, 
surrounded by controversy. And you know, I'm sure, that although the Ripper openly taunted the police with letters and newspapers and he put graffiti on the wall and all that, Jack the Ripper was never conclusively identified. And when Spurgeon died, thousands of Londoners were still living in terror because of the fear of his crimes. So, again, his ministry spanned a time in London that was a difficult time to be upbeat and cheery. Spurgeon had such a compassionate heart and such a keen mind and such a sensitive temperament that he simply could not dismiss from his mind all of the misery and misfortune that enveloped him as a pastor with so many suffering people in his flock. The catastrophic fruits of sin surrounded him constantly, and the endless awareness of that was like a spiritual miasma that kept him on the precipice of profound sadness literally all the time. It would have been deemed inappropriate in the Victorian era for his biographers to talk about that too much or delve too deeply into what was considered a totally personal matter, Uh, The question of what was the source of Spurgeon's melancholy just wasn't discussed in those early biographies. Clinical analyses of depression, that would have been considered as personal as any other medical question in Victorian times. You just didn't discuss such things openly. But there have been a couple of recent 21st century works that have explored the issue of Spurgeon's depression, because we live in an era where how you feel is generally considered to be more important than how you think or what you believe. And our generation, frankly, could learn a whole lot from Spurgeon and how he dealt with his miseries in private before God. So here are a handful of resources on the subject. Slide one. Zach Eswine published a book in 2014 titled Spurgeon's Sorrows. This is a pastoral treatment of the subject, and Eswine's obvious aim is to offer help and encouragement for readers who are struggling with their own, you know, feelings of despondency. Parts of this book are focused on the issue of depression in general, more than on Spurgeon's personal battle with gloom and discouragement. And that's probably fitting if the author's motive is to help people who are struggling with their own depression. But along the way, he also brings up many good facts and quotations from Spurgeon, giving us some fresh insight into how Spurgeon struggled with depression. So it's an informative book. Here's a second, more clinical treatment of Spurgeon's depression. This is Elizabeth Scoglin's book, Bright Days, Dark Nights. This was first published by Baker in the year 2000, so it's a little more than 20 years old already. Uh, The author of this book is a licensed counselor whose approach to counseling integrates more from secular psychology than we would all of us like to see, but overall, I think the research she has done into Spurgeon's miseries and her analysis of why he felt so much sorrow and how he dealt with it, all of that is very helpful. If you want to study Spurgeon's depression further or even more intently, there have been a few academic papers that have been published on the subject. There's, an, uh, there's one online from Southern Seminary. This is a PhD dissertation by William Albert titled, When the Wind Blows Cold, 
subtitled The Spirituality of Suffering and Depression in the Life and Ministry of Charles Spurgeon. I found this one extremely helpful, mostly for the many quotations and historical facts that he highlights. It's an interesting read. Another fine doctrinal dissertation that you can download for free is by Dale Warren Smith, written for the University of Missouri, Kansas City, titled The Victorian Preacher's Malady, subtitled The Metaphorical Use of Gout in the Life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is not about Spurgeon's depression per se, but it deals with his constant suffering from the pains of gout, which I'm certain contributed a lot to his feelings of despondency. I've had gout, and I can see how it would be a source of depression. So that one is uh, Dale Warren Smith, the title, The Victorian Preacher's Malady. And also downloadable online is an academic paper by Mitchell Pierce, written for Whitworth University. This one is titled simply, Charles Haddon Spurgeon on Depression. You'll find this one if you just Google the title. And one last book, this is a kind of daily devotional titled, Besides Still Waters, Words of Comfort for the Soul. It's edited by Roy H. Clark and published by Thomas Nelson. And it's a collection of modernized excerpts from Spurgeon's messages and his writings. The daily entries that have been chosen uh, are filled with consolation and encouragement for the reader who's suffering from any kind of grief or trial. It has 365 one-page excerpts, so it would serve as a as a daily devotional for a whole year. I think that's what it was written for, though it's not, it's not lined out by calendar days. It's just 365 pages, and each page has an entry. And I'm not keen on modernizing Spurgeon. There's not much, in this book, not much documentation either that points you to the source of what the, this editor is using from Spurgeon's published material. Those would be my only two criticisms. But the substance of what Spurgeon said is there, and, and if any quotation in this book strikes you as particularly worthy of a requote, it's usually not that hard to find the original source. Uh, but the best feature of this collection is the way it goes through every book of the Bible in order. So I said it's not lined out by calendar dates, but it is lined out by biblical order. It follows the order of the canon, and it has an entry on from every book of Scripture Except Second John, which I'll mention later, that's the only book Spurgeon never preached from, the little epistle of Second John. Anyway, this book is still in print. Darlene and I each ordered a copy independently of each other, and uh, it arrived yesterday. <laughs> All right, so you can go back to the next slide. It's just the generic one. I was recently discussing Spurgeon's struggle with depression with a friend who told me that he thinks all the postmodern talk about Spurgeon's melancholy is just overblown, because he insisted Spurgeon could not have been a gloomy person. And these were his arguments. He pointed out that depressed people aren't usually very productive. You know, they go to bed and try to sleep off their feelings of despair. And, and it would be hard to identify anyone who was more productive than Spurgeon. All the sermons he preached, all the books he read and reviewed, all the books he wrote, the magazine he edited, the pastoral work he did, the many institutions he founded, including two orphanages and a a college. So his output, especially given that he died at age 57, just makes me ashamed of what I've accomplished in my life. 
But his output equals or exceeds that of the best-known workaholics in church history. In fact, the collection of his sermons alone, the published sermons, has more words than the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. It's a more valuable set of books than the Encyclopedia, too, in my estimation. (laughs) And furthermore, my friend said, Spurgeon had a keen sense of humor that you will immediately detect if you read almost any sampling of his published works or any random sermon. There's always a note or two or three or four of humor built into it. His book, John Plowman's Talk, Plain Advice for Plain People, is as witty as it is full of insight, and his sermons, and especially his articles in The Sword and the Trowel, his magazine, are full of stuff that will make you smile or laugh right out loud sometimes. There was a, there's a story that a 19th century Karen once took him to task for, for making people laugh while he's preaching. She said, a sermon is no place for humor. You shouldn't do that. She scolded him. And so he said to her, Ma'am, if you knew all of the amusing thoughts that occur to me while I am preaching that I never say, you'd be congratulating me on my restraint. (laughs) Spurgeon worked during the week from home. He had a big library in his home, and that's where a huge table. He and his secretary sat there editing things, writing things, working throughout the week. And there were always deacons at the church on duty who could help deal with the pastoral needs of people who might come in off the street during a weekday. But it was also well known that Spurgeon worked from home, and so needy people frequently would show up at his residence asking him for financial help or pastoral counsel or whatever. And so to protect his time, unless the the need was urgent or if the need was specifically great and only Spurgeon could deal with it, or or especially if the counsel or assistance that they needed was time-consuming, Spurgeon would actually write a little note to the deacons at the church, and he would seal it in an envelope, and then the needy person would carry the sealed note to the deacons with Spurgeon's instructions on what to do. And there's a file of these handwritten notes still in the possession of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I once suggested to the pastor there, Peter Masters, that they should publish those notes uh, because it seems to me I'd love to read the pastoral wisdom in those notes. But Dr. Masters said that since Spurgeon himself meant those notes to be private, the church still wants to honor his wishes on that. And they're probably right. But he described one of those notes for me, and he said it was a woman who had come seeking financial help, and he sent her with a sealed note to the deacons, and the note says, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is the gist of it, the note says, I believe this woman's needs are real. Do whatever you can to help her, but be forewarned, she talks like a parrot with its tail on fire. So Spurgeon did have a lively sense of humor, and his humor, his humor frequently came to the fore. It, it, it was always tasteful and sometimes even edifying, but he was truly funny, and, and he, sometimes he was even mischievous in his playful humor. There's a whole chapter about his sense of humor in the autobiography that his wife and secretary assembled after he died. If you want to look it up, it's chapter 81 
in the original version of the four-volume biography. It's titled Pure Fun, and it's just a series of anecdotes about humorous things he did and said. And all of that is to say that Spurgeon didn't typically wear the signs of his depression on his sleeve or on his face. But if you read his letters and sermons attentively, it's obvious that his struggles with depression were deep and frequent and troublesome to him. He usually kept his sorrows from dominating his dealings with other people. He usually didn't announce or publish the fact that he was downcast. But anyone who knew him intimately, all of them testified that the battle against chronic sadness was a perpetual struggle for Spurgeon. So let's talk about the nature of Spurgeon's private struggle with depression and his uncanny ability to hide his gloom from everybody around him. I contend that Spurgeon's disposition was prone to sorrow even from early childhood, and there were several factors that made his childhood very difficult. When he was just 18 months old, Spurgeon was sent to live with his grandfather in Stamborn, and we don't have any definitive record on why he was cared for by his grandparents at such a young age and for so long, because he stayed there until he was eight years old. But it's fairly easy to guess what was going on. What we do know is that Charles's mother was pregnant with a second child when he was sent to his grandfather's, and in all probability there were problems in the pregnancy that kept her bedridden and unable to care for an 18-month-old. And again, Victorian rules of propriety would not permit it to be mentioned if, if that were the issue. Spurgeon's mother, we know, ultimately gave birth to 17 children, nine of whom died in infancy. So the family was full of sorrow. The second surviving child, the one whose delivery seems to have been complicated, so Spurgeon had to be sent away, was a girl. She was born shortly after Spurgeon went to live with his grandparents. And then less than a year and a half later, a brother, who was the third of all the children who survived, was born. That was less than two weeks before Charles's third birthday. His parents now have two infants in the home to care for, so he stayed with his grandfather. And assuming that his mother suffered from some kind of infirmity, it's understandable why he didn't return to his parents' home until he was nearly eight years old, because by then he had three younger siblings. He was old enough to be a helper to his mother. And, and by the way, Spurgeon always spoke of his mother with genuine, warm affection. Although he lived away from her for most of his first eight years, they developed a close relationship, and he loved her dearly and credited her uh, to be the one who had prayed for his salvation. He believed he would maybe not have come to Christ if it had not been for the earnest prayers of his mother. Anyway, except for holidays and rare visits, he was separated from his parents for most of his first eight years. Now, how far was the distance? If you drew a straight line from Kelvedon, where Spurgeon was born, to Stamborn, where his, father was, or his grandfather was serving as a pastor, it's just 15 miles as the crow flies, but it was and still is a 25-mile journey by road, and that wasn't such an easy matter in horse and buggy times, especially for a busy pastor to, to take his grandson to see his parents. So I don't think those visits were as frequent as 
maybe we, we would like to see, but Spurgeon's grandfather was a busy pastor, and in fact, as a toddler, Charles was cared for mostly by his aunt. She was his father's sister named Anne, and she remained single all her life, living at home with her parents. She's the one who taught Charles to read early, and he became a voracious reader. By age six, he had taken a keen interest in his grandfather's pastoral work. He would go with his grandfather on visitation. And he also started reading his grandfather's theological books at a surprisingly young age. By seven or eight, he was reading Puritan works by authors like Thomas Watson and Thomas Brooks and his favorite, John Bunyan. And through those influences, and because of the preaching of his grandfather, Spurgeon became keenly but privately aware of his own need for salvation, the guilt of his sin. He felt all of this deeply. From a very young age, he liked solitude. He would disappear at times for hours, and and no one would know where he was, even as a toddler. Years later, he explained to his Aunt Anne that as a child, he used to hide in a tomb in the graveyard. They lived right next door to the church. The graveyard was right there. And there was this altar-shaped grave marker. It was above the grave, but it was a, a stone altar that had a loose panel on the side, and he, he would pull that panel aside and go inside the altar-shaped thing and then put the panel back in place and just hide there in the darkness of this grave. He, of course, would hear his grandmother and his aunt looking for him and calling his name, but he deliberately and kind of mischievously remained silent and hidden in that tomb. In fact, here's his own description of that. I'm reading from the autobiography. He wrote this, quote, No, I did not get into the grave, but it had a sort of altar tomb above it, and one of the side stones would move easily so that I could get inside, and then by setting the slab of stone back again, I was enclosed in a sort of large box where no one would dream of looking for me, How often I've listened to the good people calling me by my name. I heard their feet close to my den, but I was wicked enough to still be lost, though, even though the time for meals was gone. Dreaming of days to come befell me every now and then as a child, and to be quite alone was my boyish heaven. That's an interesting statement. To be quite alone was my boyish heaven. He went back to the graveyard years later and was sad to find that that altar-shaped tomb had been dismantled and the side stones had been used to make some steps when they refurbished the chapel and the lid of that tomb just lay flat on the ground. He couldn't get under it anymore. He was too big to get under it by then anyway. (laughs) In fact, he described the lid on that stone structure as just two feet above the ground. So the space inside there would have been cramped even for a toddler. And Spurgeon is describing a time in his life when he could probably still be called a toddler. He might have been five or six years old at the most. And if you can imagine a boy that small inside a a graveyard alone, hiding in a cramped tomb, stone tomb, describing it as boyish heaven... You can maybe get a feel for what an unusual character Charles Spurgeon was from the very beginning. Now, I wouldn't say that he was morose or antisocial because he wasn't. 
But he obviously did have some quirks in his complex personality that would probably have made him a total recluse if he weren't also so highly motivated to be a minister of the gospel. I mentioned that even at a young age, he was conscious of his sin and his need for conversion. He felt very deeply the weight of guilt for his sin. He was burdened with a sense of condemnation that seems out of proportion for his small size and his relatively innocent life. Pilgrim's Progress was his favorite book. He read it hundreds of times. In fact, his personal copy of it is on display in the library in Kansas City at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can see it, a little pocket-sized copy of Pilgrim's Progress that he practically wore out reading. And he said he closely identified with the main character, Pilgrim, because he was dragging around this large burden of guilt, which was pictured in the book like a massive backpack or or a, a rucksack that he carried on his back that weighed him down and made all forward progress very difficult. And Spurgeon said he secretly felt that way himself. By the time he was 10, this sense of his own soul's burden became almost unbearable for him, and he started on a quest in earnest to find salvation. Now, think about this. He was surrounded by grown-ups who might have helped him with some wise counsel, a little bit of gospel instruction. In fact, the two most important men in his life, his grandfather and his father, both were pastors, both of them capable ministers of the gospel. All of the other adults in his family, from his aunt Anne to his mother, all of them were devoted believers who also would gladly have helped him, but he kept his struggle private. He didn't tell anybody about it, and from those who knew him at that age, you wouldn't know he was so deeply troubled by talking to him or watching what he did. In his description of those years, it's, it's clear that he was already, as a 10-year-old, under a cloud of despair and depression, and yet he somehow managed to keep his feelings hidden from everyone around him. One of his early biographers, one of the biographers who knew him personally is W.Y. Fullerton, who says this, It's a long quote, but I'll read it to you. Quote, The boy Spurgeon continued in quest of Christ for five years, from the time he was between 10 and 11 years old until he was between 15 and 16. Into those years was crowded a world of experience which enabled him in his subsequent ministry to probe the secrets of many hearts. He learned more of the things that matter in those years than most men learn in a lifetime that one so young, so sheltered, trained from his babyhood in the ways of God, could have felt so much and had such exercises of soul may seem impossible. His own account of his darkness and despair may appear exaggerated, but those who are well-versed in the ways of God will understand. Fullerton says, It must not be supposed that the lad became morbid during those years. He lived two lives. One, keen, natural, bookish, observant. The other, absorbed, fearful, doubting, insurgent. If he had spoken of his trouble, there were those around him who could perhaps have helped him out of it. But he battled alone, hiding his thoughts from them all, save once when he spoke to his grandfather of his fear of being a lost soul, and he was somewhat comforted for a while. 
but even that didn't last. And Spurgeon's anguish was amplified by the fact that, and this was a characteristic that followed him through his life, he refused to deal superficially with questions of sin and guilt or issues like divine judgment and eternity. Fullerton says this, He would not believe because others believed. He must have an assurance of his own. He would not rest until he knew. And so his quest for salvation continued for a full five years, all of this private agony for him for five years. And during that time, he visited dozens of churches and listened to scores of sermons, but nothing seemed to penetrate his heart, even though his head was already full of sound theology and an abundance of gospel facts. Remember, he cut his teeth reading the Puritans. He describes this five-year struggle over the burden of guilt as the worst bout of depression he ever suffered. So here's a man who suffered depression his entire life, but he looked back to this five-year span in his childhood that he says was the worst of all. He said this, quote, I love to bless God for every terror that ever scared me by night and for every foreboding for every foreboding fear that alarmed me by day it has made me happier ever since and now if there be a trouble weighing on my soul I thank God that it is not such a burden as that which bowed me to the very earth and made me creep along the ground like a beast by reason of heavy distress and affliction and he also came to see that His own battle with feelings of despondency actually made him more effective in pastoral ministry to other people. He said this, quote, "...when I talk with a young convert in deep distress about his sin, I can always tell him something more of his anxious plight than he knows how to express. And he wonders how I found it. He would not wonder if he knew where I had been and how much deeper in the mire I have been than he." Now, I hope you know the story of Spurgeon's conversion. I'm not going to go into detail on it, but here's what happened. One day, one Sunday morning, on the way to some random church that he was sampling, he was caught in a blinding snowstorm. This was a historically bad snowstorm, registered as one of the worst storms England ever, one of the worst winter storms they ever had. And caught in this blizzard, he turned down a small alley to escape the wind, and there in front of him was a small primitive Methodist chapel. There were no more than 15 people inside of it. He decided to go in there rather than brave the storm. And uh, he said it was virtually empty, 15 people inside, and the scheduled preacher couldn't get there because of the snowstorm. And the man who got up to preach then was virtually illiterate some kind of working man. Spurgeon was never able to find the man or learn his name, but his sermon was short and simple and, frankly, embarrassing. It's maybe why the guy never identified himself to Spurgeon. (laughs) The message itself was this crude little discourse about the simplicity of the gospel. But the preacher called out Spurgeon. He noticed him there and said to him, you look very miserable. And there was enough gospel in this makeshift message that Spurgeon was converted on the spot. That chapel where Spurgeon was converted is still there today. You can go there. There's a plaque on the wall commemorating his conversion. It looks exactly like it did when he went there. 
And he said his conversion immediately lifted that cloud of depression. Years later, he wrote about that day. He said this, It is as if the gates of heaven had been opened for a moment and some flash of glory had blazed upon the eye and had been reflected therefrom. He said, I remember my own joy when I first had peace with God. I thought I could dance all the way home. I understood what John Bunyan meant when he declared he wanted to tell the crows on the plowed land all about it. And Spurgeon then, with a head already full of doctrine and a background of experience under his father's and grandfather's pastoral influence, he began almost immediately to testify and proclaim the gospel, and he spoke with such aplomb that a small church in Water Beach, near, a little town nearby, asked him to come and be their regular pastor. And soon, he hadn't been there very long, a year and a half maybe at the most, but word of his preaching skill came to London, where one of the oldest and most important Baptist congregations in England, the New Park Street Chapel, the people there heard of him, the deacons there heard him. Spurgeon was, again, just 19. He had been converted less than five years, but the New Park Street congregation called him as their pastor. This church was close to 200 years old already, so this was a historic and, you know, by most standards, an ancient church already. And in fact, three of the greatest Baptist luminaries in history had each pastored that church over the century and a half leading up to Spurgeon's time. The church's founding pastor was Benjamin Keach, who was a magisterial Baptist, one of the original London Baptists. He led that church for 36 years in the 1600s during the Puritan era. John Gill, who is arguably the most learned and influential Baptist commentator ever, I still use his commentaries, he pastored that church for more than 50 years in the 1700s. And then John Rippon, who was famous for publishing a collection of hymns, I think it was the first ever Baptist hymn book, he pastored that congregation for 63 years up until 1836. That was just 15 years before... Spurgeon came and preached the first time at the New Park Street Chapel. This chapel, by the way, was on the south bank of the Thames, right on the shore of this river that emitted this constant stench. It was, if you, if you know London, you want to know where it was, it was located pretty much right where the reconstructed Globe Theater is today. The air there was thick with miasma. The church despite its rich history, was seeing a, a bit of a decline, and young Spurgeon had no background that would equip him for the sophisticated cosmopolitan culture of London. It was, frankly, hard for him to fit in. Nevertheless, they called him to be their pastor, and he weathered that first year with the cholera epidemic, and the church, under his preaching, grew so quickly that they outgrew the building in just a little over a year. Spurgeon was barely 21 and had been the church's pastor for less than two years when the congregation realized they could not continue in this auditorium the way it is. And so in early 1855, they temporarily moved their services from the New Park Street location so that builders could refurbish and expand the building. That was the original plan. They met for a month at Exeter Hall, which was a 4,000-seat venue Again, if you know London, it was located in the Strand, right across the street from the Savoy Hotel. There's another hotel there now. 
but then it was Exeter Hall. This was well known as an evangelical gathering place. It was born out of the anti-slavery movement in the 1830s. The building was now more than 20 years old, and it was beset with serious acoustic problems. Most speakers could not make themselves heard. There was no amplification, obviously. 4,000 people in an auditorium that was not designed for good acoustics. And uh, frankly, 4,000 seats was still not big enough for the audience's Spurgeon drew. People's people's modes of transportation choked the Strand on Sundays. You couldn't get through that street, the busiest street in London. Crowds of people thronged to hear him. This, he literally could have filled any auditorium in London. But at the time, Spurgeon was being subjected to bitter criticisms from other ministers and political cartoonists and anonymous writers in the newspaper and city officials, all of them criticizing him. Some of his critics were scandalized that a congregation of Christians would meet in a public hall rather than a church building. Others accused him of undue pride or arrogance unbefitting a minister because he wanted to even gather such large audiences. And we know that those early critics caused him much distress because he said so. He wrote that year in a private letter to his fiancée, quote, I am down in the valley partly because of two desperate attacks upon me. And then in a sermon a couple of years later, he said, quote, when a slanderous report against my character came to my ears, my heart was broken in agony. Nevertheless, the more he was criticized, the more he learned to endure it patiently. And as he established himself in London, he also began to garner more praise than criticism. The critics turned in his favor, or the critics went away, and people who wrote about him wrote positive things. And ironically, that made him melancholy. He said this, quote, "'It always makes me feel sad, so sad that I could cry. If I ever see anything praising me, it breaks my heart.'" I feel I do not deserve it. And then I say, now I must try to be better so that I may deserve it. See, he learned to take the abuse. He said, if the world abuses me, I'm a match for that. I begin to like it. But he never was totally comfortable with all the praise. By the time the enlargement of the New Park Street Chapel was complete, the building was already insufficient. On one occasion that year, Spurgeon preached in the open air, And more than 10,000 people came to hear him, if you can imagine that. Again, out in the open, no amplification, a crowd of 10,000, and he spoke to them. So the following year, in June of 1856, the congregation decided to give up on the New Park Street Chapel. They moved back to Exeter Hall and, and started plans to sell the New Park Street Chapel. It was a terrible location anyway, and the decision was made then to build the Metropolitan Tabernacle at one of London's busiest intersections, Elephant and Castle, and that's where the church has been located ever since. They couldn't stay long at Exeter Hall this time. The auditorium was overcrowded and insufficient, and the owners of that venue told Spurgeon that they couldn't rent their hall to one congregation indefinitely. But a couple of miles away, there was a 15-acre park with a zoo known as Royal Surrey Gardens. It was adjacent, again, if you know London, it was right next to where the Oval now stands. The Oval is a sports stadium. 
This is a large park that had been built as a privately owned pleasure garden, open to the public, and the owners had a zoo, and they would entertain people with reenactments of the eruption of Vesuvius or the Great Fire of London. I don't know how they did that, but it would have been fun to watch. They also had frequent fireworks displays and concerts. So this was a kind of tourist attraction. And, and they had this early zoo, which at one point was sort of competition for the London Zoo. But the zoo died out and closed down in 1856. And the proprietors then decided to build a massive music hall on the site where the, Jew, where the zoo was. This was a classic... Victorian-style iron structure with galleries stacked too high, so two levels of balcony, and it seated 12,000 people. It was designed for concerts, and like everything in London, it was closed on Sundays. So this seemed a perfect temporary venue for Spurgeon's congregation. It was also large enough to accommodate the thousands of guests who would come to hear Spurgeon preach. And The very first time the congregation met there, it was the evening of Sunday, October 19th, with the building packed, and still there were thousands outside who couldn't get in, an unthinkable disaster occurred. So here's how how W.Y. Fullerton describes it, quote, "'The service began before the appointed time. A few words of greeting, and then there came a prayer, a hymn.' And the scripture reading, with a running comment, this was Spurgeon's exposition. He'd read the scripture and comment on it. According to the general custom, this was their order of service. After another hymn, prayer was being offered when suddenly there was a cry of, Fire! The galleries are giving way! The place is falling! Fullerton says it may have been hysterical excitement, much more probably It was the criminal work of miscreants bent on plunder. A terrible panic ensued. Many of the people rushed for the doors, stumbled, fell, were piled on each other. The balustrade of the stairs broke and people toppled over. Seven people lost their lives. And 28 were taken to the hospital with serious injuries. And Spurgeon, of course, standing on the stage, again, there's no amplification, uh, and some of this is distant from him, he saw the commotion, but he didn't know about the fatalities or the large number of seriously injured people. And so for a while, he tried to calm the crowd so he could continue with the service and preach his sermon. And this, of course, gained him more scorn from his critics, as if they believed he knew what was going on. Ultimately, It was impossible, though, to continue, and so Spurgeon himself, when he realized how serious the disaster was, fainted from the trauma and actually had to be carried from the building unconscious. Criticism of that event continued for years. In fact, to this day, there's a website online called the Victorian Calendar that describes the tragedy in a way that is perfectly framed to try to make Spurgeon out to be the villain. They say this, quote, This is a contemporary website. This is still up. Spurgeon appears on stage. A call for, they're talking about after the panic starts, right? Spurgeon appears on stage. A call for praise God from whom all blessings flow goes unanswered because the choir has fled the gallery. The cleric's choice of sermons, Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, is hardly reassuring. 
He shouts above the din, There is a terrible day coming when the terror and alarm of this evening shall be as nothing. He soon faints and must be carried to safety by his deacons. And then they continue with this. Spurgeon's flock behaved no better in a crush than a music hall mob. Actually, in a crowd that size, fewer than one-fifth of that crowd belonged to Spurgeon's flock, but let's disparage them anyway. So the description continues. Men were seen to knock down women and children to get to safety. The Spectator, that's a newspaper, said Spurgeon proved quite unable to control his multitudes. The Illustrated London News claimed that Spurgeon had degraded the pulpit to a far lower level than that of the broadest buffoonery of the stage. The Times reminded him, there are limits to all things, even hearers, and the Saturday Review actually accused Spurgeon's minions of continuing to hand round the begging box, despite the tragedy, unquote. Spurgeon was severely shaken by this. He remained catatonic for days, and he described years later his own agony in these words. This is Spurgeon. Who can conceive the anguish of my sad spirit? I refused to be comforted. Tears were my meat by day and dreams my terror by night. My thoughts were all a case of knives cutting my heart in pieces until a kind of stupor of grief ministered a mournful medicine to me. I sought and found a solitude which seemed congenial to me. There again he talks about his love for solitude. I could tell my griefs to the flowers, and the dews could weep with me. My Bible, once my daily food, was but a hand to lift the sluices of my woe. Prayer yielded no balm to me. There came the slander of many barefaced fabrications, libelous slanders, and barbarous accusations. These alone might have scooped out the last drop of, drop of consolation from my cup of happiness. But the worst had come to the worst, and the utmost malice of the enemy could do no more. Now, it's my belief that Spurgeon never did fully recover complete peace of mind after that incident. Today, they'd label it PTSD, because for years afterward, possibly for the rest of his life, little things would remind him of that night, and he would be swept under by a new wave of sadness. He wrote, a word about the calamity and even the sight of the Bible brought from, brought from me a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. He, he wrote an article where he recorded the story of the music hall disaster several years later, where he dealt with it in great detail, writing a long article that stands as chapter 50 in the autobiography, so you can look it up and read it. In fact, it is a must-read if you want to understand the depth of Spurgeon's depression. You can feel his fresh anguish as he's writing about this thing that happened decades ago. This is perhaps the most poignantly personal thing Spurgeon ever wrote. And remember, he was only 22 years old when the Surrey Gardens Music Hall disaster occurred. He's, he's still very young. He carried the grief of that for the rest of his life, 35 more years, as if it were fresh sorrow. But I would say that still is only one factor that contributed to his suffering. An even more personal and literally painful factor was health-related. Spurgeon inherited a a proclivity to kidney failure. He ultimately died 
of Bright's disease, which uh, that's what they called it in those days. It's better known these days as nephritis. Uh, It's a failed kidney, basically. And the symptoms are a cornucopia of pains and physical limitations. And these issues troubled him actually from a very young age. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak, and he simply did not have a strong constitution. He had never been particularly robust, and in fact, Spurgeon himself suggested that his preference for serious study and reading, even as a child, may have contributed to his health problems. The the biographer Fullerton says it like this, when at 40 years of age, Spurgeon lectured on the subject young men, He said in all seriousness that he was an old one. He's only 40 years old, calling himself an old man. And then Fullerton quotes from that lecture where Spurgeon says this, quote, I might have been a young man at 12, but at 16 I was a sober, respectable Baptist parson sitting in the chair and ruling and governing the church. And at that period of my life when I ought perhaps to have been in the playground, developing my legs and tendons, which no doubt would have kept me from the gout now. I spent my time instead at books, studying and working hard and sticking to it, very much to the pleasure of my schoolmaster. Now, Spurgeon was probably wrong to to think that exercise in his teenage years would have kept him from gout. Gout was no doubt related to his kidney failure. Gout, you know, is caused by too much uric acid in the blood, and it attacks the joints, and it is supremely painful. And Spurgeon suffered from it almost constantly. His health worsened every winter. The cold weather made it worse. And so by 1871, when he's only 37 years old, he started taking his vacation at the peak of winter so that he could travel to a warmer climate. It was the only way he could get relief from the pains that constantly assaulted him. Let's say it's the only really effective way, to be honest. He also insisted that smoking cigars brought him relief. (laughs) I don't know about that. But his winter retreat of choice was Mentone, France, on the French Riviera. It's right on the Italian border. You can practically walk to Italy, Italy from Mentone. Mentone is where Spurgeon died in 1892. He was familiar with that town. He went there pretty much every year. He died 1892. That was 21 years after his first visit there. Now, a few years ago, during one of the times when I was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Peter Masters very kindly let me examine a file of unpublished letters from Spurgeon. These were handwritten originals, not photocopies, but the original letters that Spurgeon wrote. And it was a file full of updates that he had sent to his congregation when, for health reasons, he was unable to be with them. The church keeps it in a file. And the file included the last letter he wrote to his congregation from Mentone before he died, it was, a, it was a fascinating file to read. All the letters are poignant. All of them have powerful notes about his sadness and his pain. And yet, as was characteristic of Spurgeon, he never let his depression have the final word. He would honestly chronicle his health issues as much as Victorian propriety permitted, 
but he would always end on a note of triumph, similar to what you often read in the Psalms, where David starts talking about how disconsolate he is, but he always ends on an, almost always ends on a note of triumph. Anyway, in that file was this letter from Mentone dated January 10th of 1884. That's just eight years before Spurgeon's death. This was the year, by the way, that Spurgeon turned 50, 1884. He's six months away from, as he writes this letter, six months away from his 50th birthday, 1884. This letter is explaining to the congregation that he's going to be a little late getting back to the pulpit from his normal winter break. Here is the letter, Warren. I'll read it to you. I knew, you, I knew you'd do that. But you can maybe follow along as I read. Here's what it says. Dear friends, oh, well, it says, Mentone, January 10th, 1884. Dear friends, I am altogether stranded. I am not at all able to leave my bed or to find much rest upon it. The faint of rheumatism, lumbago, and sciatica mingled together are exceedingly sharp. If I had to turn a little to the right hand or to the left, I am soon aware that I am dwelling in a body capable of the most acute suffering. However, I am as happy and clear of head as a man can be. I feel it such a great relief that I am not yet robbing the Lord of my works, for my holiday is not quite run out. A man has a right to have the rheumatism, if he likes, when his time is his own. The worst of it is that I am afraid that I shall have to intrude into my master's domains and draw again upon your patience. Unless I get better very soon, I cannot get home in due time, and I am very much afraid that if I did get home at the right time, I should be of no use to you, for I would be sure to be laid aside. The deacons have written me a letter in which they unanimously recommend me to take the two more Sundays so that I may get well and not return to you an invalid. I wrote to them saying that I thought I might take a week, but as I do not get a bit better, but rather worse, I'm afraid I shall have to make it a fortnight, as they preferred. Most men find that they go right when they obey their wives, and as my wife and my deacons are agreed on this matter, I'm afraid I should go doubly wrong if I am contrary to them. I hope you will all believe that if your servant were able, he would always be with you. But as this cannot be, I am most thankful for the retreat afforded by this sheltered spot, and even more so for the rest of heart that comes to me through knowing that you are all spiritually fed under the ministry of Dr. Pearson. That was A.T. Pearson who was filling in for him at the tabernacle. May his health be maintained and that of his wife during your trying winter. You may feel sure that I'm doing pretty well or the doctor would be looking me up. When he next calls, I will have a bulletin from him. Until then, you may rest in peace about me. May the saturating showers of blessing for which I am looking soon fall in tropical abundance and may no, may no front of the field be left dry. If there are any very sad, downcast, self-condemned ones among you, I desire my special love to them. The Lord himself looks from heaven to spy out and redeem special characters. And then he says, see Job 33, verses 27 through 28. I think this text is a message for somebody. May grace abound towards you, yours ever heartily, C.H. Spurgeon. This is classic Spurgeonic style. He Notice he acknowledges his own struggle with pain and depression, 
but his chief concern is for the hurting people in his flock. He tells him not to worry about him. He says, the doctor's fine with me. Even though he's chronicled all these ailments, he doesn't want people worried about him, but he also doesn't want to surprise them with a, a late arrival, and he knows he's going to be at least two minutes late. His chief concern is for the people in his flock. Elsewhere, whenever he spoke of his pain, he would always be careful to mention his blessings as well. And there's another one of those letters that he wrote from his sick bed to the church. This one was written from Spurgeon's home in Norwood, that's in South south suburb of London, where Spurgeon at the time was bedridden with pain and illness. The date on this one is January 1881. And in fact, notice the date on this letter is exactly three years and one day earlier than the other letter that I just read. This one was written, it's significant because it was written one day after the Spurgeon's 25th wedding anniversary. Here's what it says. He writes, from Westwood, Beulah Hill, Upper Norwood, January 9th, 1881. My dear friends, the past week has been full of disappointment and anguish. My pain came upon me in furious gusts and beat me back when I thought I was within sight of shore. I've endured as much as I can, as much as I can imagine, one from God to be capable of, but Blessed be God, the fury of the storm seems this morning to have abated. Pray for me that I may be permitted speedily to recover. Our family gathering and the visit of the deacons on our silver wedding were both postponed owing to my being much worse. So he missed his 25th anniversary because of his sickness. Ah, me, he says, this is trying work, this pain and downcasting. Still, through your prayers, it will pass away. He who is the health of my countenance and my God will yet appear to me. The kindness of friends, both at the tabernacle and far away, has been overwhelming. If I cannot tell my pain, so neither can I recount my mercies. The Lord is good, and blessed be his name. Receive my grateful love, yours in Christ Jesus, C.H. Spurgeon. So there you see his determination to make more of God's mercy than he made of his own pain. That's the thing that enabled Spurgeon to weather so much sorrow and so much pain. You wonder, how did he get through all of this? How did he stay productive? It's because he purposely focused his mind and heart on the blessings God had given to him rather than the pain he suffered. You can switch to the next slide now. This... this Perspective colored his preaching as well. He constantly preached in order to encourage downcast people. If you notice this and watch it as you read his his sermons, you'll see that Spurgeon always preached with an aim to encourage people. His own experience in his quest for salvation had encouraged him to make the promises and encouragements of the gospel more prominent than the castigations and condemnations of the law. You know, you know, both law and gospel are essential. He, he, he didn't denigrate the preaching of the law. Spurgeon preached the whole counsel of God. But even when he was preaching on a text that highlighted the law's condemnation, he never left his sermon without making the good news of the gospel stand out as boldly as possible. You'll never find a Spurgeon sermon that doesn't have the gospel in it. And he did strive to preach 
the whole counsel of God. You can look over the course of his whole career. Spurgeon, as I said, preached from every book of Scripture except Second John, which is a very short epistle. We can, we can forgive him for that one omission. Because he chose these texts at random, but it shows you the span of his, his coverage, how familiar he was with all of Scripture, even the minor prophets. He, he rarely preached more than two sermons on any one text. He did sometimes, but when he did, his second visit to a previously used text would always be a fresh sermon, completely new. He didn't do what I did. He, you know, I'll recycle the same old sermon with the same outline and the same content and just hope nobody remembers what I said 10 years ago. He preached for decades, and he never did that. Always a new sermon. He didn't reuse the same outline. He didn't, he didn't recover the same material with the same flow of logic. You know, he said there were several things he said more than once, important truths that he would stress, but he never re-preached the same sermon to the same congregation. But there was one passage that he preached on at least ten times, and it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. That text says this, and, and I want you to notice as I read that passage how many references it makes to lifting up the downcast. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Spurgeon loved that text, and you can see why. I mean, it defines how he dealt with his own depression. His sermons and his Commentaries are full of rich insights on the subjects of suffering and grief and depression and pain. In fact, let me give you just one more sample. In The Treasury of David, that's Spurgeon's massive multi-volume commentary on the Psalms, he comments on Psalm 42, uh, verse 5. He's quoting a short sentence, first of all, from John Trapp. Trapp was an early Puritan writer in the first part of the 1600s. He wrote a, a, a commentary that's still used by many today. It's quite good. Spurgeon quotes him and then comments on, and then elaborates on what he says. So here's the quote. The text is verse 5 in Psalm 42, where the psalmist writes, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, and I shall still praise him. So, Here's Spurgeon's comment, and I'm going to abbreviate it a little bit. There's a few ellipses in here, but I'm, I'm reading you. I'm not changing his words. I'm just leaving a few things out. Here's what he wrote about this. Quote, As Trapp says, David chides David out of the dumps. And then Spurgeon adds this, And herein he is an example for all desponding ones. To search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for grief. Self-ignorance is not bliss, and in this case, it is misery. The mist of ignorance magnifies the causes of our alarm. A clearer view will make monsters dwindle into trifles. 
Why art thou disquieted within me? Why is my quiet gone? Why am I agitated like a troubled sea? And why do my thoughts make a noise like a tumultuous multitude? The causes are not enough to justify such utter yielding to despondency. Up, my heart, what aileth thee? Play the man, and thy castings down shall be turned to upliftings, and thy thy disquietudes to calm. Hope thou in God. God is unchangeable, and therefore his grace is the ground for unshaken hope. If everything be dark, yet the day will come. Yet will my sighs give place to songs. My mournful ditties shall be exchanged for triumphal paeons. A loss of the present sense of God's love is not a loss of that love itself. This verse, like the singing of Paul and Silas, looses chains and shakes prison walls. He who can use such heroic language in his gloomy hours will surely conquer. It's like he's writing there for us his own key to the way to overcome depression. And in fact, here is the key to all of this. Spurgeon's battle with depression deepened his dependence on the Lord. It, it, it forced him to resolve to seek the Lord more earnestly. It magnified his compassion for others. And it gave him an uncanny ability to reach and help people who were suffering and brokenhearted in an era that was rife with suffering and brokenhearted people. And I would urge you, as you read Spurgeon, read him attentively with these things in mind and emulate his faith. Although Spurgeon was burdened with more sorrows than you and I are likely to ever have to bear, he never milked his suffering for victimhood status. Instead, He let it turn his heart towards God and seek his grace that much more earnestly because he knew God would answer. Go thou and do likewise. That's all I have, and I will. We have a few minutes left, so I'll take questions if anybody has it. Just a few. Yes, sir. I'll repeat the question so we get it on the recording. Yeah, the question is, do you think his suffering was similar to that of the Apostle Paul, as Paul describes it? Yes. In fact, that's a really good parallel to draw. You know, Paul chronicled his difficulties in, in one, of, one of the texts where he lists the number of times he's been shipwrecked and how much beating and opposition he's suffered, and that's where he says, and on top of all of that is the care for all the churches. And so we know that Paul was constantly burdened as well. And you can imagine Paul chained up in a dungeon for, for years, uh, and people forsook him. Other Christians didn't want to be known as his friend because it would increase their suffering. Uh, I'm sure Paul had to ward off feelings of depression. Uh, and, you know, Spurgeon, I think, felt a great kinship with Paul in that, because he frequently quoted the words of the apostle uh, when he dealt with the subject of his own depression. Yeah, good question. Yes, sir. Wait, you're going to have to say that louder. I can't. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, with Spurgeon's keen mind and all that, do you think he had a photographic memory? Yeah, he did, actually. 
Um, I mean, it wasn't super photographic in the sense that he remembered everything he ever saw. But if he wanted to remember something, he would remember it for years. And he would read books. Uh, Years ago, I went to the Spurgeon Library in Kansas City wanting to see how Spurgeon himself marked up the books that I knew he read. And so I picked a couple of of them out. And and I noticed very few marks in there because he he wasn't like me. I have to underline what's important, and then I write it in the front cover of the book so I know the page number it's on. So I can remember that it's in that book but I don't remember quite what it was or what page it was. He remembered all of that stuff and could quote it from memory. And his, his quick memory, his speedy recall, was one of the reasons he could speak extemporaneously and be so full of information and, and so fluent with his words because he didn't have to pause and think. All that stuff was at the forefront of his incredible mind. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. You know, in biblical times and even in Spurgeon's time, nobody talked about PTSD, so we don't have an official diagnosis. But uh, I do think that if you if you just understand how Spurgeon spoke of what little little things did to trigger the memory of the Surrey Hall Music Gardens disaster, you, you know that today that would almost certainly be qualified as PTSD. Did Paul suffer the same thing? I don't know, but, um, you know, I don't think the way the human brain operates is, has changed. So he had those same kinds of experiences that all of us struggle with as well. Would you say um, Christ is known as man of sorrows, both in Greek? Would you say that that was, if someone looked at Spurgeon's life or Paul's life, Yeah, yeah, that's a really good observation. So uh, he's pointing out that uh, Scripture describes Christ as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do we think he experienced the same kinds of sadness and sorrow that that Spurgeon describes, that Paul felt, and all that? And the answer is yes, obviously, because um, it says in Hebrews that we have a high priest who's sympathetic with our our weaknesses, because he's experienced all of those things. And since Scripture purposely highlights sorrow and grief as the characteristic things that Christ experienced as a man, I have no doubt that he knows what it is to feel that sense of being downcast. Plus, it's in the inspired Word of God throughout the Psalms. So um, I think it's important to point that out because there are lots of people who think, well, if, if you're depressed, that's sinful because Scripture says rejoice always, you know. So if you're depressed, there's something wrong with you. Spurgeon said emphatically, that is not the case, that God sometimes puts us through times of sadness and sorrow to make us more conformed to the likeness of Christ and to make us more effective in our ministry. So don't ever treat someone who's depressed as if you automatically assume their depression is rooted in some sinful failure on their part. That's not the case. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, ma'am. I didn't hear any of that. I don't know what... 
Stand up and yell it at me. Oh. Yeah, I heard part of that. You want me to talk about Susanna Spurgeon, his, his wife? He called her Susie. Uh, she was an invalid for, like I said, most of their uh, married life. And again, because of Victorian proprieties, there is no record of why, except that we know that it was the result of some problem that happened during childbirth. She gave birth to twins, and after that, she was basically homebound. So we don't know the nature of her difficulty, but it had something to do with complications from childbirth that she never fully recovered from. What she did, though, and she was not a morose person either, even though she was confined to home for the remainder of her life, she entertained herself by starting a ministry where she took her husband's books, copies of them, thousands of copies of them, and mailed them with handwritten notes and signatures to ministers all around the world. Every now and then, if you look in a used bookstore, if you see an old original Spurgeon book, open it and look at the flap, and it's surprising how often you'll see Susanna Spurgeon's signature inside. It was a book that she sent to some minister who who needed it. So, yeah. And I'm sure that concern over her health and welfare added to his the weight of his concerns. You pass the mic up one row, and we'll get one more question here. Yeah, okay, I'm not a doctor, so I don't give medical advice, but I will, I will confess that I am extremely wary of psychotropic medicines. I think medicine that messes with your mind is dangerous, and you see it on the side effects that they list for stuff that's designed to deal with depression. The, the side effects are suicidal thoughts and all kinds of you know, demonic results, I would never take that stuff. I had back surgery a few years ago, and they gave me a painkiller that messed with my mind. After taking it for a week, I stopped. I said, I'd rather live with a pain than... Besides, it didn't make the pain go away. It just made me not care about it. (laughs) Which is not a good state of mind to be in, right? So I quit taking it. So, So if you're just asking my personal opinion, I'm wary of those kinds of drugs. uh, But I'll... I'll try to let everybody get their own medical advice from real doctors. I'm not a doctor, and I don't even play one on TV. (laughs) Next. Yes, sir. Uh, Well, I try not to be an idolater, you know? (laughs) So I had to tell myself, you know... This is not a sacred object, but it almost is. So, yeah, I, uh, I took photographs of them so that I, I would remember. I couldn't spend the time to write them all out, so I photographed the ones that struck me the most. And uh, this was back in 2003, I think. So I had a lousy camera. I wish I could go back and photograph those with my iPhone. They'd look a lot better. But yeah, it is quite something to hold a letter that Spurgeon wrote. I have a letter, actually, that I bought uh, from an auction online 
that is, is an original letter written on both sides by Spurgeon to his friend Archibald Brown the day after he resigned from the Baptist Union, and he's urging Archibald Brown to resign as well. It's, it's one, of the, one of the favorite pieces of Spurgeon. It's probably my favorite piece of Spurgeon trivia that I own. Uh, but it's quite something to hold this and realize that's Spurgeon's hand. He wrote, you might have seen on some of those letters, the ink looks a little purplish. He wrote with a distinctively purple kind of ink. And uh, I also own some of his sermon transcripts where, because they didn't have, or they didn't use tape recorders. Nobody ever recorded his voice, which is a sad thing. They, they did have technology where they could have, but nobody ever recorded, recorded Spurgeon's voice. But his sermons were recorded by stenographers, who there would be two or three stenographers in every service taking down in shorthand what he said, and then that would be transcribed and given to him at the first of every week, and he would go through the transcript and make his own editorial changes to his sermon, and then that would be published. And I have several sheets. I have a stack of sheets of uh, sermon transcripts that he's edited, and you can always tell his edits because it's written in that distinctively purple ink. And yeah, it's like, it's like holding a piece of church history. Also, this is well known, I keep John MacArthur's notes that he, he used to throw away, <laughs> is scribbled notes on yellow legal page that he took random reading notes before he actually wrote the notes he preaches from. I have a cabinet full of those that my grandchildren will sell on eBay. <laughs> Yep. Okay, so the question is, is there, can you tell why he kept his struggles so private? Uh, was there a biblical reason for that or whatever? I don't think so. I think it was just a reflection of his personality because it started at such a young age, you know, when he was still literally a child. He kept those kinds of things secret. Uh, it was probably also shaped and in, uh, into his character by just the nature of Victorian culture. Victorians, uh, it's interesting what in the Victorian age was deemed private or unspeakable. It was a huge change from years before. It's why you read, you read Luther, and he was very free with his language, even to a fault. He'll use profanities sometimes and, and talk about things that would be improper to talk about in mixed audiences and and, and all that. No Victorian would do that. The rules of public discourse were very strict. And talking about personal medical issues or even your state of mind uh, in, in a public way, it just wasn't done much. So, you know, I think it was a good thing for him to, to deal with you know, you wish as you read it that he hadn't been so private that somebody could have helped him. But on the other hand, he himself said that the fact that he wrestled with these things just between him and God uh, helped to shape his character and, and, and um, 
embolden his own faith. So in the long run, I wouldn't say it was a bad thing for him. Yes, sir. What what was the question at the end? Oh, it's one of my favorite books too. That's Ian Murray, the Forgotten Spurgeon. Uh, he said John MacArthur says that's one of his favorite books. It is one of my favorite books as well. Uh, anything by Ian Murray, you know. Uh, in fact, I think John would say this as well that if you listed his ten favorite or most influential books that he's ever read at least four of them would be books by Ian Murray. Uh, Anything he writes is worth reading. But what he did in The Forgotten Spurgeon, I think it was written in the 1950s. It's a a fairly old book. Uh, What he did was sort of lift Spurgeon up out of obscurity, the fact that Spurgeon wasn't just this jovial Santa Claus kind of guy. He was a fighter. And um, by the 1950s, there weren't many people who who actually had been alive when Spurgeon was alive. And the lore about Spurgeon was all about his friendly, funny stuff. And Ian Murray dug out the facts from The Forgotten Spurgeon and said, this is a side of Spurgeon that doesn't get so much publicity that people today need to remember and appreciate, because it really was, and I agree with Ian Murray, it's probably the most important thing about Spurgeon was the firm stand he took for the truth, even when it cost him friends and support. Uh, He was a fighter, and that was a good thing. I'll take one more question. Where's the other mic? Okay, way in the back corner, just stand up and yell it. Yeah, uh, yeah. in fact, uh, so I think I got all of that. He was a contemporary of Karl Marx, who lived in London at the same time as Spurgeon, contemporary of Dickens, and uh, lots of stuff going on in London at the time. Did Spurgeon ever openly address Karl Marx? No, he, he, did, he, did, he was quite aware of uh, Charles Darwin's influence. They were also contemporaries, and... Uh, he argued strongly against Darwin's notions about evolution and all that, although Spurgeon believed in the gap theory, so, which is an odd interpretation of Genesis. One of the things I disagree with Spurgeon on, so he believed that the earth might be millions and millions of years old, that there's a, an unspoken gap between Genesis 1-1 and the next verse, I guess. Uh, and, and uh, that theory has been pretty much discredited, and I think if Spurgeon thought through the biblical ramifications of it, he probably wouldn't believe it because he just believed in the authority of Scripture. But he, he despised Darwinism and knew that it was going to be a bad influence not only in the world but within the church. As far as I know, he never mentioned Karl Marx, 
But Marx was aware of him, and Marx's closest ally was Friedrich Engels. And Engels had a daughter who filled out these, instead of autograph books, they used to have these question books where you'd, you'd find somebody, hopefully even a celebrity, and have them fill out, like, questions about what's your favorite color and who's your most despised person. And that was one of the questions. What person do you most despise? And Engels answered on his page, Spurgeon. So they were aware of Spurgeon, and they despised him. Spurgeon was, there was nobody in England in, in the late 1800s who didn't know about Spurgeon. He was literally the most famous man in the country. And in fact, comments were often made that he was more famous than the prime minister. And prime minister was Benjamin Disraeli, who was quite famous. But Spurgeon was better known. It's kind of odd when you go to London today, not many people remember Spurgeon. I've had Londoners say to me, who is he? But in his day, he was the most famous person in the country. And so all of those people were aware of him. But as far as I know, he never said anything about Karl Marx. He wouldn't have liked him, of course. 